that's what resistance training is like for males and females when it comes to burning calories. So when you lift weights and when you do resistance training, your metabolic rate has to go up in order to repair from that workout. So that means that you burn more calories while you're sitting watching TV or reading your favorite book or just chilling on the couch. Cardio, on the other hand, works in a different way. There's a misconception out there that people will say, well, cardio burns fat. I'm like, cardio doesn't burn fat. Cardio burns calories, and burning calories can potentially support a deficit, which can help reduce your levels of body fat. That's how cardiovascular activity works. Welcome to the High Performance Health Podcast with your host, Angela Foster. The show where we talk about everything you need to break through limits and achieve a high-performance mind, body, and lifestyle. Hi friends, Angela here. Welcome to another episode of High Performance Health. Today, I am chatting to Brian Keane, um, known as Brian Keane Fitness Online, and he's an amazing guy. He's become a friend, actually, and we chat so much in this episode about fat loss, how you can get really lean and healthy, and what's the difference between looking good and actually being healthy and how you can do both together, which is surprisingly actually quite rare when you want to get to those um, really enhanced body composition results. We also talk about mindset. Brian has a very powerful mindset. Um, he's done some incredible events himself and challenges like the Marathon de Saab, where you have to run um, 250 kilometers through the Sahara Desert in seven days. He's also done an Arctic challenge. He has a very, very strong mindset. So, so if you're looking to get leaner, healthier, um, enhance your confidence and your mindset, then you're going to really want to dig into today's episode. Now, over the past seven years, Brian has gone from working full time as a primary school teacher to becoming one of Ireland's leading thought leaders on all things health, fitness and nutrition. He's had mainstream features everywhere from the UK and Irish Daily Mail, The Star, Mirror and Men's and Women's Health magazines. Um, in the summer of 2017, Brian published his first book, The Fitness Mindset, which spent 16 weeks on the Amazon bestseller list. And then in December 2019, he published his second bestselling book, Rewire Your Mindset. And over the past seven years, Brian's become one of the most recognized faces in the Irish health and fitness industry. He's spoken at major wellness events such as Wellfest and was a keynote speaker at Google HQ in Dublin for their 2018 wellness event. He's also super fun to chat to. He makes things really, really simple. Um, we cover a wide range of topics, as I say, in this episode. So let's dig in. Let me introduce you now to Brian Keane. I have an upbeat, high energy episode for you guys today. I'm so thrilled to be joined by Brian Keane, who is an online fitness trainer and nutritionist. If you haven't started following him on Instagram yet, you absolutely must. He's so much fun and entertaining posts, but also such great value. If you really want to get in shape, if you want to enhance your energy, your health and wellness, your productivity, then Brian is your guy. Brian, it's amazing to have you here today. The pleasure is all mine, Angela. I cannot wait to have a chat. Yeah, I'm so excited. So where are we going to get started? How did you start off in this journey? Because I think you were a bodybuilder originally, but you've done some amazing kind of feats of physical challenge. Um, let's just go a little bit into your background and your story, because I know it's exciting. Yeah. So even taking it back before I did bodybuilding, I used to be a teacher. So I was a primary school teacher was my quote unquote real job um, before I transitioned into what was at the time one to one personal training 
working as a nutritionist and then into the online space. Um, so yeah, so my backstory kind of goes way back to that. I did three and a half ah. years working as a primary school teacher yeah, in London. And in 2012, when I certified first, I got my qualifications. I did, I worked the two jobs. I worked as a teacher during the day and then I worked as a personal trainer at nighttime. And then in 2014, I made the transition and I moved back home to Ireland, back in with my mum and dad. Um, it, my sister gave me her old little car, which was as old as I was to try and get to and from the gym. Um, and I said, I'd try and get this personal training business off the ground. And with that, nobody knew who I was. I had no social media, like literally my name didn't carry any weight. And I started seeing these bodybuilding shows and fitness modeling shows and men's physique shows starting to get popular. And I remember thinking, well, if I do these, at least people will start to know who I am. So I transitioned into that world and I ended up doing really well. You know, I, I became a professional fitness model, which basically just means you get paid to do the shows. Um, and I got to travel around the world doing photo shoots and things along those lines. And it worked for my business. It got me a load of one-to-one -one clients. It got me a load of people working with me where I had to bring on other coaches and other trainers. And then after a couple of years of doing that, I transitioned out. So in 2015, my daughter was born and I did my last show. She was born in May 2015. And I did my last show in August 2015, which was the world's in Las Vegas. So I, I came eighth, I came top 10 in that show. And I was so brain dead. I was so tired all the time. And I remember thinking, I, I'm going to be a crap dad if I keep doing this. And my priorities changed. Like I literally did a complete 180 where I decided I'm not doing this anymore. I'm not doing bodybuilding. I'm not doing fitness model shows. This is way too consuming for me. I couldn't do it by halves. You know, I struggle even to this day to do things by halves. If I'm in, I'm all in on things. Mm -hmm. And as a result of that, I transitioned out and was looking for something else that I could do. And I started writing my first book, which was the fitness mindset that I released in 2017. That book did way better than I ever expected. It did 16 weeks on the Amazon bestseller list with bestseller in the, the bookstores in Ireland. I got so lucky with that. And then my online business just kind of exploded from it. And as a result, I started to set myself these other physical challenges that I could do partly so that I could create content, but also that I wanted to kind of develop my own mental toughness. Like something that I've always struggled with through most of my life was just not being the most naturally mentally tough person. I tend to bottle things or can and have in the past bottle things quite easily. And I wanted to build up that resilience. And the way I did that was transitioning into those world of ultra endurance. So I started first by signing up to what's called Marathon de Saab, which is six back-to-back -back marathons through the Sahara Desert. And I signed up to that in August, 2017. I was actually at a Tony Robbins business mastery in April of that year. And I met a guy over there who's become a really good friend of mine, Tom Otten's his name. And he was telling me about this crazy race in the Sahara. He was like, you have to run six marathons back to back through the sand. You have to carry all your food on your back, all your safety supplies. You need a venom pump within arm's reach at all times in case you get bitten by a snake. And I'm like, that sounds insane. And at the time I actually missed, uh, Angela, I missed the whole next speaker at the event because I was on Google, just Googling Marathon to Saab and Googling this race. Uh, so I missed an entire hour of a speaker and it planted the seed. And then I came home and I thought, oh, I can't do that. I was like, one, I can't run. Like I'm, I'm 85 kilos. I'm quite well built. Like I'm 85, I'm short. I'm five foot eight. I'm built like a hobbit. I'm like, I can't run a marathon. Don't mind six through the Sahara. And I just forgot about it for a while. I kind of put it to the back burner. 
And then I put up a post on Instagram about a month later about, you know, behind every fear is a person you want to be. It was some, some quote along those lines. And I'm like, you hypocrite. Like, I'm like, you literally have bottled out on this race in the Sahara because you're afraid and you're posting it on Instagram for people. And I felt that real disconnect in authenticity from what I was telling people to what I was doing. So I went home that night. I signed up for the race. And the next morning, I went and did my first two kilometer run at the end of my workout. And I nearly got sick. I remember thinking, oh my God, what am I after signing up for? Six back to Mac Marathons works out at about 250 kilometers. And I got mm-hmm. sick after two kilometers. And I didn't know what I was going to do. I remember I had my head in the hands in a local gym at the time. And I just paused and figured out, well, what's the thing I need to do? And for me, it was, well, I need to run a marathon. I'm like, there's no point worrying about six if I can't do one. So I set the goal as a marathon. I was like, right, I'm going to sign up to the Dubai Marathon in January, which is four months before the Sahara. And I started training for that. And I built up to two kilometer runs, to three, to four, to five, to six, to 10, to 20, to the point that I was comfortable running a marathon. And then I did Marathon de Saab. I got through the six marathons in the Sahara, some crazy stuff happened you know we had a sandstorm one night where a pole and a hand went flying through somebody's hand and cut straight through their hand like wow. I, it was a period when I can come back to that where I literally thought I was going to die um but got through it and then I had this massive wave after it of oh my god where else in my life am I creating these limitations on myself I just had this huge surge in confidence like confidence is just repeatedly keeping confident you know um keeping promises to yourself and this was one of those promises that I kept to myself that I would do regardless of how scared I felt because I was terrified like Angela if you got me the week before I went I if you had given me any credible out I would have taken it like I told my friends my family social media but I had no credible out I'm like I'm gonna actually have to go and do this so I went I did it but I got a massive surge of confidence off the back of it and then a year later or just under a year later I what in my head was the natural transition was, well, I've done the heat now. I want to go do something in the cold. So I ran through this, the Arctic Circle line, which was 230 kilometers over five days running through the Arctic. And that was probably the next level because I tore my Achilles tendon 86 kilometers from the end. So I had to run the last 86 kilometers on the torn Achilles. I couldn't walk for three months when I got home, um, but got through it. Like I, I came back from that, had a completely different relationship with pain. Like these challenges and events, and these these sound crazy, but there's somebody else's 5K. There's somebody else's squatting, you know, 10 kilos on a bar. There's somebody else sitting for an extra five minutes in a sauna. Like it's all relative really based on the person. But for me, I was getting all these personal growth and these, I was becoming stronger mentally every time I did them. Like I, I came back from the Sahara, felt like I could do anything. I came back from the Arctic. I felt like I could handle any pain that life threw at me physically, emotionally, whatever it was. And I've just been doing these endurance events since. I did my first 100 mile ultra marathon last year um, in Nevada, right before the lockdown in Ireland with COVID. Um, and as of now, I'm you know sitting in my car chatting to you and uh, you know talking all things kind of health, fitness mindset. But uh, yeah, that's not a very short synopsis or an elevator pitch, but that that's my backstory to now. That's amazing. To, to be honest, there's so much I want to unpack there because you've said quite a few things. And I think people listening, like I mean, many people listening, including myself, will be thinking, well, I'm never going to be able to run a 
hundred miles because I'm not I've never been someone that's into kind of major endurance activity. And I guess like you were talking a lot about the mindset there and the confidence and the mental toughness. But how would you go from bodybuilding to running? And I guess that we almost need to go back a bit further because bodybuilding often isn't a very healthy industry to be in. So when you mastered that and you were having that level of success as a as a bodybuilder, were you healthy already? Were you in good shape, good shape, as in were you eating healthy and still getting those results? Or what was your baseline? Yeah, it's an interesting one. I there's one of the things that I think people have a misconception, definitely on my channels, is they put health and fitness together and they're not the same thing. Mm. And bodybuilding is probably the epitome of that. I wasn't healthy, but I looked very fit, you know, very lean, very muscular but I definitely wouldn't have said I was healthy. You know, my nutrition was what you'd probably expect from a bodybuilder. Lots of rice, chicken, broccoli, repeat, you know, as opposed to, to now where I have a much more well-rounded nutritional profile with different foods. You know, I'll come in and out of keto. I'll, I do intermittent fasting regularly. Things for my overall health that I would never have done as a bodybuilder. You know, I was six to eight meals a day, every two and a half hours and just eating consistently. And the transition out, it was, it was an awkward one. Like it's an awkward one. Like I'm not a small guy. I'm still not a great runner and I don't really enjoy running that much, which sounds silly when you run through the Sahara and run through the Arctic and run a hundred miles. But like, I don't enjoy the process. I don't find it easy, partly because of my build, partly because of some previous injuries. I used to play sports. So I've had a couple of knee surgeries, so I don't find it easy. But that's where a lot of the growth comes from. You know, the growth comes from challenging yourself and doing something that you know your life will be beneficial for doing and you do it regardless of how you feel. And you just condition yourself to do that consistently over time. One of the reasons I get up at 5 or 6 a.m. every morning as well, the same reason. I hate early mornings. <laughs> like, you know, I like sleeping in until 9, 10, 11 a.m., you know, and just having a nice and chill day. But getting up at 5 a.m. allows me to be more productive. It allows me to get my workout done before my family have woken up or before my daughter's woken up or before my partner's up or, you know, I've all my major things done or my work tasks done largely before 12 o'clock in the day. And that kind of gives me freedom to do it. You know, it's the, the discipline equals freedom philosophy. And I think running is similar and the transition from how I ate and how I lived as a bodybuilder is completely different now. But my goals have changed too. Like when my goals were body composition, I did everything that would help with body composition. You know, I ate foods every two and a half hours. I probably had the worst leaky gut of all time from eating all the time. Like mm. I was considerably bigger than I was, than I am even now. And I was weightlifting. I was training two or three hours a day, doing the cardio, using the supplements, focusing on my sleep and recovery. But I wouldn't say I was healthy. I would say I was fit. I would say I was lean. I would say I was muscular. I definitely wouldn't say I was healthy. Yeah. Yeah. Which is really common around, among people that are in the bodybuilding industry that I talk to. And so now where then when you moved into that endurance running and you said you were sick after the first two kilometers, how did you pick yourself back up and learn to run? Was it just a case of going, right, I'll each day I'll run a bit more because it's a tremendous strain, isn't it? For someone who isn't running and also someone who's heavy, who has a lot of muscle to put that strain on the joints. How were you able to do that? Because you said, well, I actually, I picked one marathon first. But then there's lots of people who'd be like, well, I couldn't even conceive one marathon, right? 5K is going to be a lot. How can someone that's listening to this podcast who maybe wants to try something new that is a challenge, develop that mindset and that discipline to follow through on that goal, which then is the stepping stone to the next? 
well, it's like the old adage, you know, how do you eat an elephant? You do it bite by bite. I think like the biggest goal you set for yourself, and they're relative, a big goal for someone is 5K, somebody else it's 10K, someone else it's a half marathon, somebody else it's a full marathon. You break it down. You, you know, you keep the end in mind. What's the goal you're looking to do? But you break it down into its smallest component parts, which for me look like, you know, I ran two kilometers and then I was like, well, I need to build up to three now. And then after I got to three and I got comfortable there, I went to four. And when I went to four, then I went up to five. And what happened to me, now this doesn't happen to everybody, but I got quantum leaps in fitness jumps. I didn't go from five to six. I went from five to 10. And then I went from 10 to 20, which is peculiar. But again, everyone's body responds differently. But I got better with it faster. Now, it's so weird because when people ask me, and this is so relative, and I never want to get lost on the message by the complete lack of, relativity to you know running through the sahara running through the arctic but those first two kilometer runs were harder than the 100 miler 100 those first two kilometer runs that i did like that most journeys most things that you start are always going to be the most difficult in the beginning that first two kilometer run i thought i was going to get sick whereas on the 100 miler i was sore i'm like but i had trained i was in a good position to run that but the first two kilometers, I'll never forget. I'll never forget how my body felt. I'll never forget how sick I felt. I'll never forget how, like, in my own head I was, where I'm like, what are you doing? Like, what have you just signed up for? And, like, your own biggest enemy being between your two ears and just having to, like, silence that voice and go, right, stop this. Stop this negative thinking. Focus on the positive. What can you do tomorrow? Or what can you do today that can help you for tomorrow? And I was like, okay, I need to come back into the gym tomorrow. I need to try and do two kilometers and hopefully I won't feel as sick. So I just did it slower. And then I went back in the next day and I did it at the same pace again. And I built up gradually. I think that's the same, whether you're trying to go intermittent fasting, whether you're trying to go onto a keto diet, whether you're trying to start running, whether you're trying to start weightlifting, you start slowly and you gradually build up. Keep the end goal in mind on what you want to achieve and use other people and stories and things for inspiration by all means but focus on your path on what can I do today that's going to potentially help me hit my end goal. You know, sometimes like there's an old, there's a philosophy on ultra in ultra endurance events that sometimes the, the break is the thing you have to do. Like if you're running a hundred miles, sometimes the thing you have to do in this moment is take a break and let your body recover for five minutes, for 10 minutes, as opposed to, you know, you need to keep running. So you, you look at life that way. What's the thing I need to do today that's going to help me with the overall end goal? You know, and I think that's relative, regardless of what you're looking to do, whether it's a business thing, whether it's health, whether it's fitness, whether it's relationship, what can I do today that's going to help me? Or what can I do right now that's going to help me with my overall end goal? And then you just focus on that. I agree. And what you said there, I think is so important about the recovery being key. And it is honestly the, the thing that I struggle with the most, because as a typical type A personality, and as you know, my story, I completely burnt out as a lawyer. Um, I just keep going and keep going. And that it's almost like I find high performers don't really know how to recover or how to relax, right? And relax, relaxing is a skill. Like I never used to think this. I think, why can't I just sit down? Why can't I sit and watch TV like anyone else? I just can't sit still. It actually is a skill that you have to develop. And I'm not saying TV is a good thing, but actually doing something that you enjoy that gives you that release and kind of reinforce, I suppose, gives you that creativity back, right? It's space and time, isn't it? It could be anything. It could be sitting in the bath. It doesn't really matter what it is because it recharges your batteries. And I think a lot of people, particularly high performers, completely overlook that and just think, well, I've got to keep gunning. I've got to keep going. Uh, I've been there like that. That was my default for, I'd say until I hit my thirties, you know, I'm 33 now. 
I, I just, I just didn't have a break button, you know, the typical type A, as you said, uh, what, what the language I had to put on it was, you know, external success fueled by internal turmoil. Like that's how it felt. Like you were externally achieving these things and you'd get pats on the backs from people because you'd have, you know, X amount of money or you'd have X amount of followers or, you know, you'd release a book or a program or you'd run a race or do a show and people are like, great job. And not realizing that that's all being fueled by just this turmoil inside that you're, it's because your brain can't stop. And I think that's a superpower to a degree. Like it means that you won't struggle getting things done. But if you are a high performer and you are somebody that's in that type A personality, just because you're outwardly or externally succeeding, that might not be the thing you need to do you may need to work on the recovery the same way as somebody that's on the opposite scale. You know, I've got a couple of my best friends who are the opposite to me. You know, they chill all day, they relax and they need me. They're like, just give me a bit of your motivation, you know, and I'll give them a bit of a kick and they'll get going. But I learned from them. I'm like, I like how they can just chill. They're just Mm -hmm. there and they relax, you know, and whatever you need to do to get there for me, like, you know, I love things like that, that bring you back into your body, heat exposure, cold exposure, like things like that. For me, that's someone's a bit more extreme. I don't find a Calm app or a Headspace app works necessarily for me. I need something more extreme to bring me back into my body and ground me. So like heat exposure in the sauna or ice baths or cryotherapy, things along those lines for me really make me feel grounded and just present in the moment. Um, But it's practice. Like Mm -hmm. that recovery aspect, whether it's mental or physical, is so easy to neglect because you won't, feel the issues or the problems as you said you know you burnt out like Mm -hmm. when you got to that point because you can push that that's the problem you know we talked about this when you were on my podcast i've heard you mention it several times on this podcast like you can push that's the problem you can keep going but at some point it's going to give but if you can figure out whether it's food whether it's you know learning to be mindful whether it's sitting in front of the tv and relaxing whether it's playing with your family and being present whether it's exposing yourself to heat or cold or something that brings you back into your body and just makes you focused and present in the moment learning that's a skill like that doesn't happen to type a's by accident <laughs> like it's the same way as somebody that's really chilled and relaxed they're not going to be motivated by accident they need to consume stuff that helps them get motivated so uh, i think identifying where your potential superpower is and then minimizing against the downside of that is, can be really really important for high achievers yes yeah, spot on i absolutely agree with you um one of the times that i find and you mentioned it there that actually helps me is the same as you is the early mornings it's peaceful it's quiet And it just feels incredible to be up for me before the rest of the house up is even before the world is up. There's a certain magic about about the morning and I'm the same as you. I get up and it's not strict, but it's somewhere between sort of 10 to five and 10 to six each day, somewhere around that. Um, What does your morning routine look like? Because you're combining this with family life. You've got tremendous output in terms of everything you produce with three podcasts, your Instagram, your programs, your books. Tell us about your morning routine and how you set up for the day. Cause I think that's going to be really interesting for people listening. Yeah. So my morning routine, it's been pretty consistent for about two years. Um, I get up every morning around 5 a.m. A little bit later in the summer, just because I go to bed later because of the sun. I try and work within my circadian rhythm as much as I can. Um, even though I do fight that getting up at 5 a.m. And I'm aware of that, <laughs> the irony that I'm like, work with your circadian rhythm. And you're like, get up at five o'clock. But I will get up at five or six in the summer. Um, and the first hour of my day will literally, I drive to a gym, which is about 50 minutes from my house. Now, I was very fortunate, even in COVID and lockdown, one of my best friends who 
owns a gym, just gave me keys to his. And I drive intentionally for about 50 minutes to the gym. Like, I, again, I've got all the equipment in my house, but on the drive, I listen to a podcast, normally business related, something that sets me up in the business frame, frame of mind for the first hour of the morning. And then I'll work out. You know, I do my workout fasted every morning. I'll sip on some essential amino acids. I'll take maybe a caffeine tablet before I train. And then I'll go do my weight routine and normally my run after it. And then I'll come back home, which will be another 50 minute drive. I'll listen to an audio book, always an audio book on the way home because you add up that hour every day, you'd be shocked how many audio books you'll actually get through throughout the year. Um, and then when I get home, I do my first two hours. It's going to be my creative work. So it's either recording a podcast, it's writing if it's for a book, it's creating videos if it's video content online. And then I'll do my first two hours. And then largely after that, I have the things that are like my, my like to do list. They, you know, replying to emails, Instagram DMs, you know, anything work related. And then I largely chill for the rest of the day. It's either family time, spending time with my partner, you know, recovering, doing some stretching, doing some rolling. So I actually don't do probably as much as it looks like I do from social media um, because I've kind of got that flywheel done. I, I'm, I'm quite productive. You know, I never want to be a busy fool. And I tend to be very productive within the time that I'm actually allocating to a specific task, but I'm also not working 14 hours a day. I'm not even close. I'm closer to probably two to three hours a day. Um, and that sets me up, but I do that consistently Monday to Friday and I do it throughout the year, regardless of the time. Um, and that adds up quickly as well. But that comes down to being busy versus being productive and making sure that you're focusing on the right thing. Mm. And so do you do everything via programs now or do you see any one-to-one -one personal clients or have I, you kind of systemized everything? Everything systemized. So all my programs, all my courses, everything is systemized. So I still coach on two of my fitness programs, but they're, they're with scales. So they, they take a couple of hours a week, potentially if it's program work where I'm answering questions, et cetera. Uh, but no, all my courses, my my business courses, my mindset course are all evergreen. So they're set up already. The programs are all set up on a system. And then when I run them, I've got the coaching element running for six weeks in there. Um, and everything else is, is, is automated. I've got the entire business set up on that. I could go off to the Arctic or I can go to the Sahara, you know, and I've got, you know, my assistant Gary working on stuff in the background to reply to people, but the entire business runs effectively without me. Without you, which is amazing. And what about it when setting that up? Were you having to work a lot more hours in the early days, presumably, to actually get those programs and books and things off the ground? Or have you just always gone with the approach of a small amount per day and compounding that over time? No, no, I went the other way. I I, I did the 14-hour days for probably about two years um, and was getting close to the burnout feel that you had. But what was confusing me at the time in say 2015, 2016, was I loved what I was doing, but I was still getting burnt out, which was really confusing to me at the time. I'm like, but I love what I'm doing. You know, it's, and it's so easy to get wrapped up in that story. Um, you know, when I was working as a teacher, like if I was working 14 hours a day, I'm like, well, it's cause I'm teaching. I'm like, I like this, but I don't love it. Whereas I love what I do now. And for those first two years, I would work around the clock, but it worked for me at the time. It's not necessarily a recommendation. I think, you know, the smart people learn from the mistakes. The really sharp ones learn from the mistakes of others. Like you can learn from the mistakes of other people. I didn't. I probably learned way too many of my own mistakes. And, but I was failing fast 
fast. Like that was the, the upside. If I was launching programs and it was failing, I'm like, okay, I would dissect it and do a postmortem on, you know, why, why did that fail? And then I would make it an attempt to make it better the next time and just kept doing that. And then once I hit kind of 2017, you had that flywheel done and it was just putting everything on place in terms of systems and automation. And that, that's what I did. But no, for two years, I did the grind. Um, but again, grateful for it now, because when I hear people that are in that bracket, I'm like, well, actually, if you did X, Y, or Z, you would get several hours of your day back. Um, but I think I had to experience it myself. Otherwise, I wouldn't have built the systems. And you talk about that, don't you? You actually coach people as well on how to do that. So what are some of the things that you, looking back, if you were going to do things differently, would you change? Because a lot of people would say, actually, the setup is always intense right in the beginning because what 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 is in motion tends to stay in motion so the biggest battle isn't it is actually making that start what would you say have you learned from that journey that you could take out because I know like I've recently gone through things and I think a lot of people need to do this it doesn't matter what business or industry you're in is look at how many things you do a day that really really move the needle on your goals and how many things you're doing because you feel you have to or should do but actually you're kind of wanting to people's priorities what would be your advice to people who are trying to really hone that productivity? Yeah, get clear on the things you should be saying yes to and learn to get better at saying no. Like that, that's that's the answer. Like that will look different based on different people. But if you get very clear, and so many people, myself included, a past self, struggle with saying no to things. And it normally comes down to, from my case, one of two things, either that you're trying to people please and you want everybody to like you, which is ridiculous. You know, not everybody's going to like you. My mum used to always tell me, you're not everyone's cup of tea, but you're someone's shot of whiskey. You know, speak to the people who shot of whiskey you are. So learn to deal with that mindset side of things. But also, if you're not saying no, it's because you're not clear on what you should be saying yes to, which comes down to your values and what you actually want to do and getting clarity on the things you should be saying yes to. So for example, you know, my, my priorities have shifted massively over the years. I know it's the same with you, Angela, at the family and business and lots of different things, but I say no to most things, you know, most opportunities that come my way to speak in places. I say no, partly because I just don't want to <laughs> like, you know, like I'm in the position now where I don't have to, like, I, I'm very fortunate and very grateful, you know, for things like conferences. People ask me all the time to speak at conferences and I say no to 99 out of hundred of them just because I don't want to go. I'm like, oh, I don't want to go there. Don't want to drive there. Don't want to lose my time. I'd rather do something else. And it doesn't fit to my end goal of what I want to do, you know, but I'll get up and comfortably write for several hours in the morning if I've got a book deadline, because the way that I put out my message to people is through that medium or through the podcast. So it's very easy to say yes to those things. And for everyone that's listening who struggles with that, and outside of what I mentioned earlier about trying to people, please get better at saying no, and get clear on what you should be saying yes to. And it makes it so much easier. That's the same with your food choices. That's the same with your workout routines. That's mm -hmm. the same with who you spend time with. Like if I had a euro or a pound for every time someone's like, oh, you know, I've got to meet Joanne for, maybe not Joanne, insert name here for lunch. I'm like, oh, I don't really want to meet them. Or I've got to meet Joe for a pint. Oh, and, and, the thought, and that's what's coming. I'm like, why are you meeting them? I'm yeah, like, say yeah, no. Right. <laughs> like, I was like, you, you should be excited to see your friends. I'm like, that's a pretty good metric for who you should and shouldn't be meeting, you know, and that gives you back a lot of your time. And I think one of the reasons that I have a lot of time is because I'm clear, you know, I've got my inner circle of people, my mom, my sister, my daughter, my partner, my best friends. They're, they're the people whose 
opinion matter to me. They're the people who I value. So they're the people I spend the most time with. And I'm very fortunate that I've got great relationships with all of those people for that reason. But everyone that falls outside of that bracket, it's not that they don't get the time, but they don't get it if it doesn't suit because this is an opportunity cost for everything you do. You know, if you're spending time with Joanne for lunch or, you know, Pete for a pint and you don't want to be with them, that's time you're not spending with your daughter or your son or your partner or your best friend where you could be strengthening that relationship. Mm -hmm. And I think once you hear that and once you realize that, oh, actually, that makes a lot of sense, it's a lot easier to do. And we can go through life with business, with relationships, with fitness, just making loads of decisions and saying yes to everything. But I'm like, get better at saying no to things and your life will become considerably easier from that point onwards. So much easier, but you're absolutely right. You actually need to say no, what you're going to say yes to, to be able to say no. Um, a great book, I've, I don't know if you've read it, is Essentialism. Love it. Great. Yeah. That's a good book, isn't it? Yeah. He's just published yeah. another one, I think. Yeah. And I think it really brings it into perspective for you, doesn't it? Because actually then you know um, what you're doing. Um, let's talk about, because of your specific expertise in this area, uh, you're super lean and healthy. Let's talk about fat loss, because I don't think there's pretty much anyone I speak to that doesn't have, even if it's only two kilos or one kilo, it could be a pound, that has a little bit that they want to either tighten up or lose or just kind of get that little bit better. What would you say are the secrets? And we might have to kind of distinguish between men and women because we are quite different. Women are not small men. But what do people really need to be aware of in terms of how much exercise they need to do and how and the type and how they need to eat to look good and stay healthy? It's interesting because looking good and staying healthy and fat loss don't necessarily come hand in hand. Um, and I will break them down. And you make such a great point. You know, women are not small men, that there has to be a different approach taken based on so many different factors. But with that, I'll talk fat loss first because that's, although people can find it complicating or complicated, it's actually a very straightforward process. You know, fat loss is as simple as understanding that if you're in a caloric deficit, which means that you're consuming less calories than your body needs, you're going to tap into those stored fat on your body and burn that for fuel. It's, it's as straightforward as that. So if you are in a calorie deficit from either making food choices where your calories are reduced below your maintenance, which is effectively the calories you need to stay the same body fat, same weight, et cetera. If you consume calories less than that, fat levels will go down or you increase output or activity. You move more, you work out, et cetera. You burn more calories, you lose body fat. It's as straightforward as that. Now there's so many behavioral issues around food. Um, People have a lot of um, uh, bad, potentially education, miseducation around food, on the, the, the difference between too much food and too many calories, all these basic things. But fat loss is that straightforward. Being healthy and lean and feeling better than is nearly over on the other side. It's, it's, it's something separate, although you can merge fat loss with it. But don't confuse those two things because you can lose body fat by, I'm not saying to do this, but you could lose body fat by just eating a couple of chocolate bars every day, you'd be eating about 600 calories and you'd lose body fat. You wouldn't be able to stick to that. You'd have down regulation and hormones. You'd feel horrible. You wouldn't look that good. Your sex drive would be low. Your mood would be poor, but you'd technically lose body fat. Your body fat levels would reduce because your calories are so low. Whereas when you want to feel lean, you want to feel healthy, you want to reduce body fat, there's other factors that come into play there. So I look at it like there's different pillars. You've got your nutrition, which 
obviously plays a massive role. I know you've covered this so many times on different people, different experts, yourself included, on speaking about this. But when it comes to nutrition and fat loss, your calorie deficit is going to be your number one thing. So making sure that you're consuming calories that are below your maintenance, so you tap into those fat stores. But to feel good, then you're going to be making other choices. You know, Based on the protocol you want to follow, for fat loss, it really doesn't matter. If you want to intermittent fast to get into a deficit, you can. If you want to do keto diet to get into a calorie deficit, you can. If you want to use whole foods, mostly you can. If you want to take a flexible dieting approach, you can. They all work for fat loss for the most part. It's just about well, what's going to be a good fit for you. You're obviously going to feel a lot different based on the protocol you use. Like I love fasting. I eat all my meals within an eight to 10 window every single day. Even if I'm running or training for a hundred miler, I'll eat all of my meals within that time window. And I'll do you know potentially a, a full day fast or a 20 hour fast on days when I'm not training for races because it makes me feel so good, but it's also really useful for body composition change. So it really doesn't matter what process you want to use for fat loss as long as you're in that calorie deficit. Based on how you want to feel, then you're obviously going to go up another level. You're training then with that. Resistance training is probably one of the most underutilized forms of potential ways to reduce body fat that females don't always use. And the analogy I use is when you resistance train, whether that's weight training, using your body weight, using something like a TRX or kettlebells, you increase your metabolic rate, which is effectively boosting your metabolism is the language people will normally use. And the analogy that I'll use here is it's like making money while you sleep. Mm. When you offer someone the opportunity where well, would you rather work 16 hours a day or make money while you sleep most people will say well i'd rather make money while i sleep that's what resistance training is like for males and females when it comes to burning calories so when you lift weights and when you do resistance training your metabolic rate has to go up in order to repair from that workout so that means that you burn more calories while you're sitting watching tv or reading your favorite book or just chilling on the couch cardio on the other hand works in a different way there's a misconception out there that people will say, well, cardio burns fat. I'm like, cardio doesn't burn fat. Cardio burns calories and burning calories can potentially support a deficit, which can help reduce your levels of body fat. That's how cardiovascular activity works. Running, cycling, hiking, having sex, all of these things are cardiovascular activity. For the most part, you're elevating your heart rate. But what happens with cardio, you burn more calories during the session, say an hour equivalent of running compared to an hour equivalent of resistance training, but then the calorie burning largely stops. Whereas mm -hmm. with resistance training, you will continue to really burn calories for 48 to 72 hours after. So using that to feel better, to feel stronger, to increase your metabolic rate so you burn more body fat, combining that with your nutrition, and then looking at things like your sleep and your recovery, like that's how you get lean, that's how you get toned, that's how you reduce body fat, and that's how you do it healthily. Add in other things that you need to, you know, I'm a big fan, as I mentioned, of heat exposure, cold exposure, which isn't great for females necessarily, it's a slightly different approach for males in terms of especially the cold immersion but having these other tools meditation yoga pilates whatever it is you want to do that's what's going to give you everything you need as opposed to just you know drop your calories too low which will support fat loss so i think looking looking at it holistically is always going to be the best approach for people and don't look at anything in isolation when it comes to you know hitting multiple goals like getting lean getting toned reducing body fat but they're just some of the basic principles that i would look at for that yeah. And I think it's interesting, isn't it? Because a lot of people don't realize as well that when just because you're burning fat preferentially as a fuel during exercise, so you might be doing a low intensity interval session where your pulse is quite low and you're burning more fat, quote unquote, quote, it doesn't mean that you're tapping into 
fat stores that you're now burning off, you're just using fats as a fuel. And that could be fats in the body. It could be fats that you've eaten. Whereas when you start to go high intensity, it's more glycolytic and you're going to be using more carbs. It doesn't mean that when you're tapping into those, oh, now I'm, you know, because I'm doing that type of exercise, I'm now going to be losing a ton of weight because I just did, you know, low intensity cardio for an hour and a half, does it? You're not actually, unless there is an overall deficit, you're still not going to lose body fat just because you did a fat burning workout. 100%. And I think understanding that and the metabolic flexibility of fat adaption versus carb adaption is really useful. You know, someone that's fat adapted is going to be much better using fat for fuel, either a combination of dietary fat that they're eating or stored fat in the body. Someone that's more carb adapted is obviously going to be way more glycolytic, as you said, but if your calories are too high, like one of my pet peeves online as a nutritionist is when, and I'm a big fan of keto. I'm a big fan of fasting. There are two protocols that I like myself. I fast regularly and I will jump in and out of ketosis in the lead up to endurance events because I way prefer being fat adapted for an event or for a race. But when people are like, you can eat whatever you want as long as you're keto, you can eat whatever you want as long as you're fasting. I'm like, not for a fat loss goal. I'm like, you can't have a maintenance calories of 2000, eat 4000 calories, in, and just because you're doing it fasting or just because you're doing it with keto and lose body fat, I'm like, that's not what's going to happen to your body. And I think understanding that's important because sometimes it can get pedals that, you know, keto for fat loss, which is a brilliant for some people. Some people will do that and they'll lose a load of body fat and feel amazing doing it. Or fasting for fat loss, which again, similar, people will feel amazing doing it and lose body fat. But if your calories are still way too high in either of those two given protocols, your body fat's not going to reduce. And I think understanding that from a basic physiological and scientific standpoint when it comes to basic nutrition is really important because then you're not setting yourself up from failure from the get-go. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And I think that's where your genetics do come in because sometimes it will work really super well. Keto will work super well for some someone, their partner or friend. It just doesn't work at all. And, you know, I've noticed that. And the way I look at my own genetics is I'm very sensitive to fats. And if I go on quite a high-fat diet... I definitely put on weight, like 100%. And I think that's the thing. But then so do I if I have really loads of carbs as well, because I'm kind of sensitive to both. And I think getting your macros arranged, but really not just for loss, but for longevity is so key. Um, the other thing I was going to ask you is, I think that um, sometimes you'll come across a case, right, of people who really, really struggle. They know that they've they've put on weight and maybe they've been overeating to get to that point and they've reached that fringe of obesity, but now they've dropped their calories and they just can't lose weight. And that's a really hard, have you, what have you found works for individuals like that where they're like, it just, it's almost like the body, because I've found it, it can be a combination of, you know, liver function, hormones, gut health, but for people whose bodies are actually really stingy about giving up fat, what have you found to work? Well, it depends how much damage they've done to their metabolism. Like you, they, some people need some form of metabolic restoration protocol, which means that they're, if you damage your metabolism, it's not going to fix overnight. Like, so for example, if you have someone that's been yo-yo dieting or has put on a load of weight from overeating for whatever reason, and there's damage there for whatever reason, whether it's, you know, insulin resistance, whether it's, you know, whatever, there's, there's a whole multitude of things, good health, good permeability that you mentioned. You need to, one, address the underlying issue, what's causing the stall and fat loss or what's struggling for somebody to release it. But you need to re nearly reset the metabolism. So what I found out, this is so individual dependent, but from a best practice for somebody in that scenario, what normally happens is they have too drastic of a cut in their calories too soon. 
So if you've gone with, you know, somebody that's been eating four or 5,000 calories every day and they've gained weight for whatever reason, you know, people have lives and they're, they're getting takeaways and they're getting too much ice cream and they're drinking too much beer and whatever it is over a consistent period of time and weight goes up, body fat goes up. It happens. It's very much a case of, well, you don't need to drastically cut anything. If you damage your metabolism or you have an underlying issue there because of your gut, because of your hormones, like you don't have to go from 5,000 calories or 3,000 calories to 1,200. You know, you can drop it gradually and that should elicit some fat loss in some people. In a lot of cases where people are overweight, and now again, it's, it's, it's so hard to say because of the context needed yeah. based on why, how did somebody get there? Because the approach you take would be dependent on that. You know, did you get there because you've just been gradually overeating or has there been a hormonal disruption or something that's happened that that's now compounded negatively over time? And, you know, I know you did a really good podcast and this really was Sarah Hill on the contraceptive pill and you're really interested in terms of waking and things along those lines that can come alongside it. Like they're all questions that would need to be asked on the front end because the protocol and strategy you would take would be dependent on that. But I think a good general advice would be fix the underlying issue. If it's a good issue, then that becomes priority number one because it'll make fat loss a lot easier. Stress and cortisol is another one. You know this from having burnout. Again, very similar. I've, I've had similar life experiences with too many stimulants, lack of sleep, just excess cortisol. Like there's no point really trying to lose body fat. If your cortisol is ramped up to the to nine or ramped up to 11 consistently every day, I would argue that it would be better to try and get that under control, either through supplementation, new mixed with nutrition, mixed with lifestyle and stress, ma- stress management techniques, and then try and lose body fat. Because otherwise you're just, you know, pissing against the wind for lack of a better expression. You're doing one thing and it's pus- pushing from the other side. Um, and it's just going to be a frustrating process, which can lead to a lack of motivation, which can lead to, you know, going back to w- whatever the original problem was, overeating. You know, if that's your coping mechanism and food has been your coping mechanism, it's going to be the one you go to again if you feel demotivated. So you want to guard against that from the behavioral aspect as well. I think just keeping all of those under consideration can be really helpful. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And that's the thing with cortisol as well, is you particularly see kind of belly fat, but it downregulates or sometimes upregulates some of the sex hormones as well, at least to poor skin. And as you say, it's like really, I think it's so stressful for the person it's happening to as well, because then they get really, really frustrated. Whereas actually, if we come at it from a different angle of, well, let's really address the stress in your life first and give you those practices. And then we can look at getting the weight off. Um, it's not, um, and I think hopefully people listening will understand that it isn't as simple as the calories are important, but isn't always simple as it's just calories in calories out, because if you're not taking care of all those other practices, you probably aren't going to lose weight, at least not on a sustainable basis, right. On a basis that you can continue with. Such a great point. And one of the things I never want to get labeled with or pigeonholed with is a calories in calories out coach. Cause I don't believe that. I believe calories are really important to understand for basic fat loss, but there's so many other things to consider, like what you've said, cortisol levels, hormonal balances, all of these things, because although calories are important, there's going to be cases, like you said, of somebody who's overweight or carrying, you know, 50 to 100 pounds of, of, of more than they'd like to be that will go into a deficit and won't get the fat loss response they want or expect. And that means there's an underlying issue elsewhere that you need to address. And, you know, as somebody that will push out the calorie message online, because a lot of I'd say 95% of people 
don't understand basic calories, my audience not don't always understand basic calorie intake and tracking it correctly. So the reason I say it a lot is, well, look at this first, but it's not to come at the expense of all these other things that could potentially be halting fat loss. So if you're somebody that's doing a calorie deficit and your body isn't responding and your fat levels aren't reducing, there's more than likely another issue there that you need to address first. And then you can come back to calories, macros and food choices after that. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And um, before you go, I, I have a question as well, because you mentioned a really important point that I think, think people overlook right at the beginning, which was actually around confidence. And confidence comes from setting yourself things to do. So disciplining yourself and actually, or setting a goal and then disciplining yourself to take the activity. As you achieve it and you do that thing, you increase in confidence. People really struggle with this because they often set goals and then something creeps in. It doesn't really matter what it is, does it? Whether you say, right, I'm not going to drink alcohol for X period of time, or I'm going to make sure that I go to the gym four times a week. And then it's like, actually, it's raining outside. It's dark. I can't be asked to get up and go. How do you, what, what do you use? Do you use affirmations? Do you visualize your goal? What would you say for people who really actually do want to make a change, but they just need that help, that motivational help to, to stay consistent and do the work. I use a combination of two things. I do affirmations and I also write all my affirmations in the first person as if I've already done them. So before I wrote my first book, I had the affirmation, I'm a best-selling author. And um, before I ran my the marathon to Saab, I was like, I have run six backpack marathons through the Sahara. And I normally put it somewhere I can see. So it's normally, you know, in my bedroom or it's in my office. It's somewhere that I can see it every day. And, you know, after that, then you're letting either, you know, whatever side of the coin you want to fall on, your reticular activation system, your, your brain's internal GPS or the law of attraction based on your belief system. You're, you're, you're starting to see things that can potentially support that goal that you wouldn't have seen otherwise. So I will do that. And then the mantra that, one of my mentors used to always tell me that successful people do the thing they have to do regardless of how they feel and they do it whether they feel like it or not. And that process gets easier over time. Mm -hmm. But as I said at the beginning, you build confidence by consistently keeping promises to yourself. But a mistake people can make is that they set the promise too big or they set the goal too big. It's small promises. It's small, consistent things that you do that lead to extraordinary results over time. And you need to find out what your version of that is. And if you fail, you don't look at failure as final. You look at failure as feedback that, right, I did too much there. I said I was going to go to the gym four times. I actually can't commit. I've got kids. I've got work. But I could probably do it twice a week. And then they do it for twice a week and that becomes part of the routine. And then if something else opens up, maybe you go to three times a week and you scale it back and you don't beat yourself up. I think definitely at some point in my life, and I think it's advice for a lot of people, like there's a time for tough love when you just have to shut up and do it. And there's a time to be compassionate towards yourself because you couldn't prioritize the thing you wanted to do. And knowing when to use what can be really helpful. Like there's sometimes, like when I get up in the morning, there's some mornings where I'm like, just get up, Brian. Or if I'm jumping into an ice bath or a cryo bath, like I'm not like, oh, I can't wait to jump into the ice bath. I'm like, just, just man up, just jump in and get it done. That's tough love. But there's days when, you know, I'll be playing with my daughter and my mind will be wandering all day because I've got an interview next week or I've got a chapter that I'm writing. And I'm like, I, you feel like a bad dad that day. You're like, I was there, but I wasn't present. Like I was physically there. And they're the days that you have to be compassionate with yourself. You go, okay, maybe don't let that happen next time. You know, maybe try and get all of that work task done or 
learn to be more present in the moment next time. So you're using compassion with yourself. And I think if you do that consistently over time, you will get better at learning what goal you're setting for yourself. As I said, put it somewhere you can see it. And then whether you need to use tough love or self-compassion or compassion with yourself, just do that consistently over time. Don't see failure as a bad thing. Don't see the mistakes as a bad thing. See it, see it as feedback on how you can improve going forward. And if you do that consistently enough over time, it's going to compound positively in you doing whatever it is that you set out to do. Yeah. And the power of compounding is just so great, isn't it? it with everything, with your fitness goals, with your financial goals, with everything. Um, and do you set limits as well? You mentioned like there with a book. So for example, if you're, I know you were saying you work for a few hours a day, but say for example, you could look at it and go, well, I could accelerate that schedule if I worked harder. So if I, instead of doing it for two, three hours a day, I now decide I'm just going to do this for five hours that could lead to burnout. But do you intentionally set caps? Do you feel like you achieve more when you uh, create a window and that's it? I can't do anymore. Yeah. I, I, I'm very aware there's a little bit of self-awareness and self-reflection now on my part. So this isn't necessarily advice. I'm aware that I, you'll get about two hours of creativity out of me most days. Most days I'm quite good for about two hours. Reactive stuff I can do all day. I can do podcast interviews. I can do emails. I can do DMs. I can do all that all day. But writing something that I, I still struggle with in terms of I find it harder than a lot of the other things I do. I can get about 90 minutes to maybe two hours of decent work out of me. So if I push that, even on the days when I'm feeling motivated to do it, I can't consistently do it. And it's also as a type A, the temptation is, you know, give an inch and take a mile where you're like, well, you know, I do, I'll do four hours today and I'll just go back to two tomorrow. But then tomorrow you're like, I did four hours yesterday. I should probably do four hours today. And you have, I, I have to guard against that. So I set up systems in place and I don't rely on my willpower and I don't rely on how I'm feeling. That's my equivalent. Like, it's so weird. We talked about this in the top of the episode. Our superpowers, type A's and people listening to this high performance people, you're, the thing that makes you successful might be being able to take a step back because that's the thing you find most difficult. So that's the thing you need to work on. Whereas sometimes in the Western world, we think success is go, 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 get things done, achieve, achieve, achieve. And that by all means might be in some people's version of what success looks like. But if you don't struggle with that side, maybe you need to look at the other side of the coin that I need to take a step back. I need to recover. I need to put limits on myself so that I don't burn out. And you, you, you do that preactively. You do a pre-mortem. You know, what's the thing that could potentially kill me or make me burn out? And you put steps in place to avoid that. Um, I'm very mindful in my own life as somebody that can default to just go, 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 training all the time, working all the time but that doesn't benefit me because I know what it leads to. You know yourself burning out when you're a lawyer, like you know what it leads to. And I think it's important to, you know, protect yourself from yourself if you find that you're similar. And I think, as you say, you cannot be creative for more than a certain number of hours. So administrative tasks, you can definitely do and you could do them forever, right? You could just keep going to a point. But if you really want to create something that is valuable to your customers, I think that really is going to be life-changing for them. What I found is, is it is about 90 minutes of creativity. I can really have those ideas and put them down and actually make something really good quality. And it's it's quality over quantity, I think, as well. There's a lot of people out there, aren't there, that are just consistently putting out quantity, 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 whereas actually less is more. It's like, I want to put out really good content that meaningfully changed someone's life than just banging out more, do this, do this, do this, do this. Um, I think that's the thing. 
So um, what would be the advice then that you would give to your former self going back over it again, where, from everything that you've built and where you are now, if you were to go back and do it again, is there anything you would change or do differently or advice you would give your younger self? Yeah, there is. And it's funny because I know a lot of people will answer the question that, you know, I wouldn't change what's happened because I am who I am because of it. So I, I do get that butterfly effect. Uh, I would say not everybody's going to like you and that's fine. I think that that mm. would be that would be the message I would give to my younger self. I think I spent way too long figuring that out. And I think it's somebody that was in a position where I'm in now had said it to me when I was younger. I would have learned to come and to terms with that and adopt it a lot faster. Yeah, I think that's great advice. I think the younger you realize that, the better, right? And it's, it takes some people a lifetime. Um, so, so valuable. Thank you so much, Brian. Where can people find you? Um, I know you're super active on Instagram. Your website's amazing. It's got so many resources. Can you link to everything and we'll put it all in the show notes? Amazing. Angela, I've absolutely loved this. Thank you so much. Yeah, um, anyone that wants to check me out, Brian Keen Fitness on the platforms, the Brian Keen Podcast, definitely go check out the podcast we did together as well. I loved that one. That was fun. Oh, so much so fun. So much fun. Um, but yeah, that's what I would check out. And as I said, Angela, thank you so much again. This is an absolute blast. My pleasure. It's been so much fun. Thank you for coming on. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of High Performance Health. I will link to everything in the show notes over on my website, AngelaFosterPerformance.com forward slash podcast, including Brian's books, his programs and his website and Instagram. So you can go and find everything that you need there, um, including the transcripts. You can download that and um, all of the show notes. That's over on my website, AngelaFosterPerformance.com forward slash podcast. I hope you really enjoyed today's episode. If you're enjoying, enjoying the podcast, please make sure you subscribe um, so you never miss another episode. I have some incredible guests lined up for the second half of this year, um, and I don't want you to miss out. Thanks again for listening, and I will catch up with you guys next week. Thanks for listening. Remember to review and subscribe. You can grab the show notes, the resources and highlights of everything Angela mentioned over at AngelaFosterPerformance.com. You can also snatch up plenty of other goodies, including the highly helpful Angela Recommends page, which is a list of everything she personally recommends to optimize your mind, body and lifestyle.